0: Hello and welcome
1: to Marxism Today. I am Red Wagner and I'm joined by Tony Schmidt and Thad. And guys, to, before we get to the main topic for today, uh, when we release this, it will be October of 2017, which is 100 years from October of 1917, which, I and actually I think the calendars don't quite line up, so it's not actually 100 years after, but... I'm gonna call it close enough.
2: Yeah, November seventh is the anniversary that, of the storming of the Winter one. Palace.
1: Okay, well, you know what? I, we call it the October Revolution, so we have to release. Uh, you know what? If you want, I'm gonna let you choose. You can release this on November seventh if you want.
2: No, that'd be way too far out.
1: <laughs> okay, <laughs> but uh, since it's a hundred years since the Russian Revolution, that. Uh, Formed the, the Soviet government and all that, uh, which had many good things and many bad things about it. And, you know, that's a topic that we can talk about sometime, not today's topic. Today, just as a small celebration, I've brought in some Russian vodka for us, uh, Ruski Standard. And uh, I thought that we could have a little cheers to the first. Major revolution in history to successfully establish a state that at least identified itself as a workers' state, even if it didn't live up to those uh, goals. So, here we go. Zadrovia. (laughs) Zadrovia.
3: It's got a it's got a harsh start, but then it has a harsh finish. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's actually worth it. It, oh.
1: it, started it's good. it started off really nice, but then Stalin got in there and ah. it, it just all, you know, it's it still drug many people out of poverty. But in the end, you know, but there were some internal contradictions that could not be resolved.
0: United forever In friendship and labor Our mighty republics Will ever endure The great Soviet Union Will live through the ages The dream of a people Their fortress secured Long live our Soviet motherland Built by the people mighty hand. Long live our people united and free, strong in our friendship tried by fire. Long may our crimson flag inspire, shining in glory for all men to see. Days dark and starny while great Lenin led us, our eyes saw the bright sun of freedom of and Stalin, our leader, with faith in the people, inspired us to build out the that we love. That was me, by the way. I that was not
3: that recording. Album. I yeah. didn't speak during that, so I can claim that I was singing just now. All right. Hi, right, so what are we talking about today?
1: Today's topic is on pointless jobs, or as they're sometimes called, uh, BS jobs. Now, this uh, is something that I've been thinking about a little bit recently because it's something that David Graeber has written an article on and done a couple of interviews for. As far as I know, I don't think he's done a major book on it. It's just like a mini project of his. Now, David Graeber, if you don't know him, you may the name might be familiar. He made a name for himself uh, by outlining how debt works, and he did this big book or lecture, something like debt the first 5,000 years or something like that, which actually I think is a a really good uh, understanding of debt and how it works and how it's always worked. Uh, But that's not the topic for today. Today's topic is Pointless Jobs, which is just a mini project by Graeber, and I thought that we could discuss it a little bit, add a little Marxist flair. Graber himself isn't a Marxist, but he's on the left. I think he identifies as an anarchist. Uh, but I think that our take is going to be a little bit different than his and uh, will also be interesting. So uh, I thought we could talk about it a bit. Now, I want to discuss this in three major questions. If we want to kind of veer off from those, I'm cool with that too. But I thought it would be uh, a nice way to frame this would be to start with are there pointless jobs? That's, yeah, that's an easy one. you got to start with <laughs> a softball. Are there pointless jobs? Two, what makes a pointless job? What jobs are pointless? How do you know a job is pointless? And then three, the hardest one, but probably to me, I think the most interesting is, why are there pointless jobs? Mm-hmm. So, first off, the, the softball. Do you think there are pointless jobs?
3: Yes. Yes. Now, we'll get into examples of this through the next question um, and through talking more in depth about how he talks about BS jobs. But I think it's pretty commonplace. Like you can talk to people. It's not uncommon that at least you've heard someone talk about an element of their job um, being pointless or people at actually having jobs or knowing of jobs within their company or w- what maybe a family member has that was unnecessary, didn't provide too much, uh, um, you know, output uh, to, for the company or, or anything like that. So I think it's it's not that controversial of a question, no matter where you are politically. So, uh, and, and that's why I think it's a cool thing that he started looking into as well to, because it's it sort of becomes a sort of like, oh, yeah, it happens – it's stupid that that company allows that to happen. Shake your finger, but then it's kind of everywhere too. Uh and then why? Is yeah, for sure. So I don't know if I've ever had one that qualifies purely as pointless, but I think in every single job I've had there's elements of that. Yeah, inefficiencies, I, things that weren't necessary, people doing things to kind of have someone doing that thing. So, but not the a product outside of that, not an end outside of just having oh, someone's doing that good, I guess.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you guys. My answer to is the are there pointless jobs is also yes, and I think the point that you made is I, I am in total agreement with it that it's not really a political stance. People all across the political spectrum and in, including non-political people, I think all agree that there is such a thing as a pointless job, and I think your other qualifier is a really good point to make, which is more common than A job being pointless or not pointless is some element of a job being pointless. I I don't know if... Maybe there are some that are entirely a hundred percent, but there's always got to be some sure. part. You yeah. know, the jobs are made up of many parts.
3: The political thing I think that um, it might be there is that some people would say that capitalist enterprises would cut out that fat. That maybe you'd expect to see a lot of these pointless jobs in, say, government. But what was interesting about what David Graeber uh, mentioned in his findings here, um, and we can talk more about that, I guess, too, in a second, was that he found a lot of this actually in the private sector. Uh there certainly did exist these pointless jobs in government, but it wasn't like that was the overwhelming majority. In fact, he has the perception that more of it was in is in the private sector based on the interviews that I listened to.
1: Yeah, that I'm I think that's really interesting, especially if you pair this up with our previous episode where we talked about some standard capitalist assumptions as to how the economy works. If you go through those assumptions, so many of them are focused on the ability to produce more output Mm -hmm. you know and and if you look at the what we call a pointless job and we're going to get to to defining them i guess in a moment here but just kind of maybe as a way to get into those is so many of the jobs that i think we're going to define as pointless and that graber defines as pointless are one often in the private sector and two ones that aren't Producing mm-hmm. aren't aren't increasing the amount of output are arguably inefficient based on capitalism's own definitions. Yep.
2: Yeah. And, and just to quickly throw out there, um, in case people didn't read or, re- or listen, not read, listen or uh, don't remember the last one. Basically, the, the assumption is that the supply and demand meet at an equilibrium point, and that equilibrium point is where a company's marginal cost equals zero. That means if I hire one more worker. I won't make money off of them, which means every worker you hire is making you money, thus being productive and efficient.
3: I think what we're going to find here is that, I mean, there's problems with assuming that that is is the case anyway, but like, what we'll find is that capitalism doesn't really work that way. There's other interests involved, other uh, reasons that these jobs will appear, and that'll be an interesting thing to talk about too. So yeah, do we want to start with the next question?
1: Yeah, let's... Talk about what are pointless jobs, what makes a job pointless, or what qualities of a job are pointless. Mm-hmm. Now, from
3: what I heard, he was – so he, I think he called himself an anthropologist. Okay. Um, so he he was saying, David um, – was and we'll probably link to the some of these like the YouTube video yeah, and the to article, his article okay. and A couple of interviews. Great, yeah. So in that, he, he, uh, in case you don't look at those, um, he just talked about talking to people. He would meet people and talk about what he does, um, studying humanity essentially, and, and people would oftentimes let him know about what their life is like, and he just found this uh, the pattern of people talking about their job being pointless, and they'd open up to him because uh, he he studies that, and so he started to compile. Uh, a list of these, and he broke them down into five categories in one of the videos um, that have sort of demeaning titles, I think we were mentioning, but they're also pretty memorable. Um, so we can kind of go through it from that, like his main five categories and talk about them, because um, they each kind of have a different flavor as to why they exist and why they're not a real job, why they're kind of a BS
1: job. Yep, and I think that just before we hop into these, because I think you're right that the uh, David Graeber's breakdown is a nice starting point for this. And I think it's also important to highlight that he's not um, making his own judgment call. He's allowing people to self-report. Absolutely, yeah. So so he's just analyzing people who have self-reported as having a meaningless job.
3: Yeah. And uh, so the first category, he said, was was flunky. um, And he categorized this, or he described these as jobs... Where they really weren't necessary. That if you pulled them away, you wouldn't lose much value. Um, and he, well, example was like a receptionist at a publication company that barely receives any um, calls, but you want to have it there because it looks good to have a receptionist. It's just an industry thing that you do. Um, I think you mentioned telemarketers in this category too. Maybe that was a different one, um, but you can think of these. This is, these are positions where they they exist, but they kind. It, and the reason he said they exist is often because. Um, you want to have a team of people you're managing. You, as a manager, look better when you have more people underneath you. Uh, And uh, so if there's ever efficiencies that come your way, they will... This is another point that he brought up. Um, he, He talked to somebody... Or maybe he was a consultant. Ah, either way, somebody has a, an anecdote where someone was mentioning, I think it was somebody he was talking to, um, somebody who was reporting their job. But he's a consultant, and his job was to provide, uh, to analyze ways they could be more efficient in their company, and and um, give give those um, you know write that up and present it to the company. And he said, over the you know whatever it was, decade, fifteen years that I've been working, they never have taken one of my proposals because it almost always cut out. A flunky. He didn't call him a flunky, but it cut out a, a, a personnel. It would have made them unnecessary. And oftentimes, that I would not be surprised that efficiencies would target these people first because that's exactly what they are: people that aren't really providing that much. Um, Output for the company. But he said a lot of times, or those proposals were knocked down because it would take somebody away. And that means a manager would have a smaller team. And I guess that would make him look like a worse manager.
1: I think good examples of this are also um, personal assistance, where, or, or, uh, you know, when someone has someone that basically like reads their email for them and like deletes their junk mail or whatever, or like reads their meeting list, their calendar to them so that they can tell them, oh, you have another meeting. But like most people can read their own email or look at their own like calendar to see what meetings they have. But it makes you seem really important if you have someone that kind of does that thing for you.
3: Anybody you've ever talked to who says like, my job I could do basically three hours in a week. Uh, or a computer program can do it. Could do it by itself. But I stretch it out because they tell me I should. You know, they're they're paying me, and they think it that it takes all this time. Those jobs I think fall into this category too. And maybe that could be some oversight. But also, I think a lot of times, like they say, people like having a, a team that they're managing and doing that, and they don't care. They're not talking to that person, being like, "How could this be more efficient?" So. Well, and I don't know if, if that's the only reason that those jobs exist. There might be other broader reasons. Um, but I don't – do we want to just move on to the next category? Or? Yeah. Okay. Next one was goons. <laughs> um, <laughs> so nice. But uh, these are ones that exist only because – other competitors or other people in the industry have them. Uh, examples he used: this I think was telemarketers. So if you, if because so many other businesses have telemarketers, if you're in a business business in that same industry, you need to now have telemarketers. Corporate lawyers was another one that he mm-hmm. put out there. He talked to corporate lawyers, and they would say, "We're we're not necessary. We're necessary because other people have corporate lawyers." Like it is an industry that is floating itself. It's it's propelling itself. Um, uh, without doing a whole lot of work other than propelling itself, keeping it afloat. Um, so this is the the next category, and I think this is a little bit different. Um, I guess there's some prestige in, you know, you having your lawyers, it, like y- you build up and you have more uh, of a presence out there, you know, when you have more quote-unquote goons. I don't know, but it could also be these other industries that are niches that convince Businesses that they're necessary, or they make themselves necessary because it's now an edge that everybody else has to also supply, like telemarketing or something like that.
1: Yeah. One of the things that Graeber says, and I think it highlights this category well, is if nobody had an army, then no one would need an army. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so I, the interesting – this is I, a point that I want to come back to in question three, but I think it's important to highlight it now that – it's a logical decision at the individual firm level to hire these people. In fact, you, you'll you fall behind if you don't many times. You know, if, the, if your competitors have corporate lawyers and they bring a case against you, that will be very bad for you if you don't have corporate lawyers at the same time. Or if your competitor is doing a lot of advertising and you aren't, uh, there's a good chance that they might gain market share and take away, you know, you will shrink as a business and they will grow. So, I think that's something that I, I want us to keep in mind as we go through these. Yeah. And from, oh, go ahead.
2: Oh, I was just going to say, it seems like it's uh, positions that exist just in case.
3: Right, yeah, and that's why, it, like being in that position and, and reporting on this, your experience is a little bit different than the flunky in the sense that you do have something you're doing as a telemarketer. You're constantly making calls, but like we like we mentioned last episode with uh, like spam mail and things like that, the usefulness of what you're doing there's a very small um, return on investment in, in what you're doing. Very few people actually. Uh, encounter a telemarketer and it works and they make a sale right but you do so much of it and because everyone else is doing it you got to do it to keep up um and so you're doing the job you're probably pretty active but the amount of worth you feel like you're providing is low that's opposed to a flunky where i think oftentimes there's they're not working they actually are doing things where they're just there sitting um so a goon might be a little more active but they're aware that they're not necessary. their whole industry could be cut out and everything would be fine. Um, and the work they're doing isn't providing a whole lot of improvement to the their company or, or the industry at large.
2: I do at least, I, I appreciate the category name of Goon because it totally makes sense to me because I like Kung Fu movies. And whenever there's a <laughs> Kung Fu movie, like, you know, like old 70s, like Kung Fu movie, there's the bad guy. And he has a bunch of goons underneath him. And there's always like... The number one goon that guy almost never has to do anything occasionally he has to do a little bit, but that goon is always there, and he's always you know the most badass one. yeah, but you just you always just need him there just in case, even though the the smaller crappier goons can be the ones who are threatening. you need that one guy to strut around and look extra <laughs> dangerous. So I appreciate the category title. <laughs> Uh, The
3: next one's similar to Goon. Unless you want to say more about this category. Oh, okay. It's similar to Goon, but it has a a little bit of difference. It's the duct taper, he called it. And this is where you're doing a job that is not that efficient, uh, but it's necessary because... Companies won't, you know, do something proactive or put more investment into something so that you don't have to do this job. An example he used that was pretty simple was just instead of building a roof for your house, you just put a pail down to collect the water when it rains, and you pay somebody to empty the pail every thirty minutes. Um, it it even it doesn't long-term, probably be, it's probably more expensive, but because you don't have to do that initial investment, it's, it's worthwhile. And for people in those jobs, I think they, it's similar to goons. They're still doing something. You can be really active, but you can just see all around you how your job with a little bit of foresight, with a little bit of, of investment uh, would be unnecessary. And I think IT, that happens a fair amount. I've heard that stories like that, but I think it's it's not specific to that industry. It's all over the place.
2: Yeah, I was gonna, have either of you heard of, of Portran or COBOL? Mm -mm. so they're old mainframe programming languages Yeah, and when computers first came out mainframes was the way to do it you basically have one giant computer that everybody accesses and everybody has their own little personal computer, it's a terminal to that but it all runs on this one big main computer so FORTRAN and COBOL were the programming languages that these mainframe things were set up on and just like you mentioned companies are too cheap it's so expensive to upgrade all of you're like base software if you're a company especially if you're a giant company. So there are a ton if you know real well Fortran and COBOL you can make just a fortune patching these old mainframe not computers but just software systems that cuz these companies spend, you know, millions of dollars on them. Thirty years ago, they're unwilling to spend millions of dollars to get a new modern thing that would be more efficient and more cost-effective. They could hire developers to work on for cheaper. So mm-hmm. that's I think that's a really a real good example of that is if you know Fortran or Cobol programming.
3: Part of this is probably stinginess, lack of foresight, but sometimes people are just they don't want to change. I, I see that in in the industry in which I work, where I end up. Um, being interacting with uh, healthcare IT a fair amount. And before, prior to coming into this interst- industry, I would not have imagined the amount of personality and politics that affect how a hospital or healthcare organization is run. Um, but man, just somebody coming in and, and having a real strong vision, on, or, or not a vision, a real strong idea of how things should work because they worked that way in the past can totally just hit the brakes on efficiency, productivity, uh, and they don't care because if things still work, it they work because of what they did. Even if things get slower, they could, I, I, I don't really know how it ends up working, but it doesn't seem to affect the actual outcome or efficiency. doesn't need, seem to affect, uh, those people in those cases. They still think it's fine. So I think there's a, potentially a lot of causes for this one.
2: Yeah. Oh, uh, also as anecdotal, my wife worked for a university bookstore for a long time I think they are owned by Barnes & Noble or something like that. They backed their data up on literal tape. Literal cassette tape is yeah. what they backed it up and sent it off to corporate on in, you know, 2000s. <laughs>
3: The, well, the last two we can go through a little quick more quickly too. It's the box checkers and the taskmasters. Box checkers are people that are doing something that could be automated that you know, but they're but they're doing it by hand. For instance, I don't know if you want to throw your your university under the bus a little bit here, but you mentioned one earlier.
2: Um, oh yeah. Um, so in order to before we were taping, by the way, not yeah. earlier in the episode. Yeah. So um, I'm finally going to graduate with my undergrad degree. Yay. Um, That's right, I'm going to mention as many times as I can before
3: that (laughs) happens. It's worth mentioning, it's awesome.
2: Um, And so you apply for graduation and they have a system that's in there that, you know, like, you know when you're ready to graduate because it shows you that you've completed everything. They pay someone to hand check everything that the computer has already approved. That is someone's job.
3: And and we were talking about even if you don't trust the program, then you could say, well, the program could be wrong. Well, there are efficient ways to suss out what bugs the program might have and work with those instead of having someone just redo the work completely by hand. Yeah,
1: Yeah, this isn't someone who's only checking weird or suspicious cases or only checking it if it's flagged as outside of normal parameters. This is... Every single person that graduates from a major university where thousands of people, I'm sure, graduate every single year.
2: Yeah.
3: This is a situation where we have a computer program doing it quickly, uh, doing it well, and doing it cheaply. And then you're paying someone to do it slowly. Probably they're – I mean, I'm just going to throw this out there. They probably make more mistakes than the computer would make. um, And it costs more. And not to say that that it just comes down to price points here, but obviously the, there's inefficiencies involved in there, and I can also see why that person would feel like that's a BS job.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. It's and I'll say from somebody coming from like a software perspective, any any questions about the integrity of the results of the software that should be part of the development of the software and the selling of that software to make sure that that's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Go Warhawks.
3: <laughs> <laughs> then the last one, Taskmasters, these are going to be your middle management folks, people who exist to tell other people what to do over or to oversee them, who often, uh, from what uh, David was mentioning in the interview would come to him and say, yeah, I'm supposed to motivate this team or t- direct them, but they are just do their job. They're fine. I'm, I'm not necessary there. There's, in fact, someone above me who, would, who could do it too. Like, so you, these that typical middle management, and I think that one's a pretty popular one too in, in, in society. People are aware of that.
1: I think the other side is if the flip side is true, where the, the people you're managing are not producing enough or not motivated... It's also – the job can also still be kind of pointless in the sense that it's really hard to take a non-motivated person and make mm-hmm. them motivated. Because the thing that's making them not motivated is probably not something under your control as as a manager. Maybe it is, but yeah. I, I would guess many times it's not.
3: Yeah, so – I think in a lot of these surface level reasons, we see that it's happening because of inefficiencies, lack of f- foresight. But I think there's broader implications here.
1: You know, before we get to the reasons why, okay, yeah, uh, I thought it would be fun to do a personal spin. I know we've shared a couple of stories, but I wanted to ask you guys, have you ever felt like you had a pointless job or a part of your job that was pointless that you wanted to kind of throw into the mix here? I'll say that as we're going through every one of those categories, I feel like I've been in every single one of them, not in, even in separate jobs, but some of those, right. some positions I've held, it's, uh, they've existed only because there was an inno- inefficient system in place. And in order to like navigate a complex, a needlessly complex system, part of my job was to help that navigation. I've had part of my job is to, you know, manage people who do work and, and they do the work and you just check it. You have meetings to waste their time to ask, did you do the work? And they said yes or no. And then you say, okay. And then you say, if anything you haven't done, do that now. Like you're not saying something that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, just as I go through that, I feel like I've been in that position, not a hundred percent of the time, but. Quite often, yeah. I, I find myself in one or more of those positions.
3: I've definitely been – I've had jobs that weren't just that. Um, so, I, I, But I think I'm lucky in that regard. I think plenty of people have. But I've definitely had flavors of, of those categories, um, but like the box checker for sure. Um, and I don't know. But yeah, m- more – more, eh, not too much actually. Uh, but I've definitely seen – my my feeling is – More that the jobs that I've done, you know, I'm just not as passionate about them or something like that. But I've been lucky in the sense that they at least I also wasn't doing something where I felt like oh this is just BS. But yeah, I think most jobs have some some tinges of a few of these categories. So I wouldn't be surprised if you listening to this right now um, can relate to that as well.
1: You know, I'll throw another thing in that I'm not sure if it fits in strongly to any of the categories. When I was a public school teacher. There was a big part of my job, which was, I'm going to call indoctrination, which was there to enforce a strict hierarchy on the students. You know, you had to make sure that the students understand that you made the rules for the classroom and if they deviated from those rules that they would be punished for it and then you had to enforce that to make sure that they understood that it would always be enforced and so they they wouldn't deviate from that and and that was a major part like you know it's called classroom management that's that's the term for it mm-hmm. in the teaching industry but it basically means making sure that students are understand the power structures of society and understand hierarchy and understand their place in hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, And while it's not pointless in the sense that it does help you navigate the capitalist system as an employee or makes you useful to capitalists as a future employee because you do the things that are expected of you, it's also, I think, destructive of... A population and a society that should be able to have an equitable distribution of power. And, you know, it, it undermines the idea that people could work together as equals to collectively work towards uh, a goal mm-hmm. without a strong-handed leader enforcing strict rules all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Man, I have an example to (laughs) not as extreme as that. um, Part of uh, when I do market research, something that hopefully we are actually cutting out of what we do, um, is I will sometimes be putting together potential client lists. So companies selling some sort of product and whatnot, and we'll contact people to find out preferences and whatnot and give them information on that. But also we will just give them a list of several hundred companies in the region and in the revenue stream and whatnot that they're looking at. And that is the job of their sales team. That is literally why you have a sales team is to identify potential customers. And so we'll be doing this work of what the sales team at these companies should be doing instead of paying us to do it for them. So, I mean, that's more of an inefficiency in those companies, but yeah. you know, just, Doing other people's work because I don't know why they're not doing. This.
1: And, and sales is an interesting <laughs> topic too because it's it's a little bit different than how economics is portrayed, like in the last episode in in the standard textbook, where you're meeting a need that exists. You know, where marketing often is trying to create a need, it's it's the business finding their customers, whereas normally capitalism is presented as the customers finding the business because they're interested in the product and not convinced or tricked or whatever into buying the product.
2: Right. That's why Sriracha is the perfect product. Their advertising budget is zero. They don't spend any money on advertising, but yet... Find a company that isn't trying to clone the Hung uh, Foy. Mm-hmm. Is the company? Uh, the Hung Foy's product, or find somebody who doesn't know what sriracha is.
3: And I think time changes these categories, too. Some jobs move into these categories when you don't realize it and might take some time to catch up. For instance, uh, one thing I was thinking about was in high school I worked at fast food. And uh, that will become, uh, I think, a a duct tape job. It's something that with putting some time and investment in, like – um having automate like automated kiosks and things like that you can cut down on a lot of people that exist there um, and so I, there are countries where this is much more common um, like Japan where th- there's a few factors that play into the reason that that, that so many jobs have been automated there um, but it's very common to go into fast food or coffee shop and you're not interacting with someone at a till you're putting your order into a, a computer and maybe someone delivers it by hand maybe it comes out uh, in, on a conveyor or something like that and it was placed there by someone in the back so there's still human elements there that exist but yeah automation can change these things and, and when, you, when you're aware of it you can see that this job is BS.
1: You know let me I'll also bring this into you know this might be getting into uh, stretching the terminology or stretching the analogy a little. Little bit, but I don't actually think too much. Um, the other part of my job when I was a teacher was to actually teach things, and in many ways, that is becoming a duct tapey kind of job. Because, well, why do you deliver the same lecture more than once? You could record it, or it, or maybe someone could just read the book. You know, if you're teaching from a textbook, you may be just presenting the same information that's available in the book. Maybe presenting it in a different way or adding a little twist here or there but it might not be very much different than what's there. In many ways if learners are self-motivated then the teacher in many ways becomes redundant. Now I don't think in all ways, but in some important ways does. And and I think we're we have an education system based on something that relies heavily on the teacher. But especially with technology now, the way it is, recordings and being able to like go back and watch the lecture multiple times if you want or whatever, you know, I think some of that is maybe a little bit behind the times. I still think that there's an important place for the human element in learning something new. I think there's a way that your brain engages with new material in a deeper, more important way when you're actively engaging with another human about that thing and some people need that
3: i mean some people couldn't just sit with a textbook or just watch a video some people that right. would be better for them but the, most people need at least some element of that and some of them need that completely
1: yeah yeah exactly but the i think the interesting part now is i think we're assuming that everyone needs it for most of the time
3: And there's something here that I think slows down progress and innovation that we're touching on, which is that the idea of making things more efficient or more effective that cuts out jobs is bad. Like even hearing that like, oh, I don't want teachers to not have as many jobs. But that's all based on the premise that when those jobs are, go away, people get nothing and you're just unemployed. And that's mm-hmm. that's something I think at the, at the heart of this too is just identifying that work is good for its own reasons, that someone who is not working is bad and wrong or not working as much is bad and wrong. Uh, that's kind of at the heart of a lot of these because why have people – why justify it um, if your whole ideology is surrounding uh, – that doing work is good in in, in of, of itself doing really good work and working hard makes you rich and that's really good. So then why, why support all these jobs that are needless, that people aren't doing anything that they're not working very hard in oftentimes. And they're aware of that. Well, you support it because you don't want to go to the alternative, which is to say, Oh, eventually we can make things super efficient. And the amount of time, the amount of work that needs to be done, won't equal the amount of people we have to do it. It already doesn't, but it'll be way more, the the inequity will be much bigger. And we have to talk about like basic universal income or something like that. We have to start broaching those topics. So we can't, we can't do that. And I think that's the revealing thing when people think of this and they're like, oh, it must be government jobs that are like this. Government's so inefficient. Like, no, this is a larger ideological trend. This is something that has to do with a resistance towards, I think, and, I, and and David mentions this too, like not wanting to, to challenge the idea that we always have to be working. It's always the most important thing.
2: So, oh, sorry. I brought up a meme here quick to show you guys and we'll share it. This is from Turning Point USA, who are, I think they taught themselves as being like a campus free market organization. And so this is supposed to be an anti-socialist meme. And it's a building that says... socialism sign up here and there's two doors one of them says uh work hard keep half and the other one says no work free stuff and it's everyone lined up in front of the no work free stuff door and this is meant to be an against socialism argument because don't you know it's inherently bad to not work um
3: when the truth, the truth behind this is that as our technology has allowed us to, I mean, at the base level, create food for so many people and, or, or and get cheaper electricity and uh, more efficient housing to be created that you really do. I mean, it's not ever going to be no work, but the amount of human activity that has to go into everything, uh, is, is decreasing. I, I, um, read a cool blog post, so uh, I will add, before I go into this caveat, that I, I don't know if all the numbers in here are, are play out exactly, but the, the thought of this, I think, is, is compelling um, and holds some truth. But talking about what the amount of man hours that would go into um, allowing a person to live, um, in the past, that might have been a lot more because, say, a single farmer in, in one cro- um, year's yield of his crop could feed 100 people or something like that. Nowadays, that's not the case. A single farmer with technology and, and advancements in, in um, GMOs and things like that, you could feed thousands. So the amount of time that goes into getting food to just survive has gone way down. The amount of time to, like I mentioned before, housing, the amount of time to create the the clothes you need to wear, all the goods you have, because of technology, the amount of human work hours has has dropped, and maybe human work hours to just survive as a person, maybe, maybe like five thousand human work hours have to go into having you as a person survive your whole life, and that's where I'm saying that you know these numbers might not be scientifically accurate, but think of it that way. But we definitely don't work five thousand hours in our life, um, and and so where's all of that other? Uh, profit going? Where's all that other value and that labor going? And when I started thinking about it that way, I was like, man, yeah. What's going on? And as that drops, and we're more resistant to accepting that it's dropping, it's just going to create worse and worse conditions for people. People are going to be more and more BS jobs, and more people will be unemployed, and it's something that we really need to
1: talk about. We've dived pretty deeply, I think, into that third question of why do we have these BS jobs? And I'm glad that you kind of outlined David's stance on that, which is that we've got kind of this Protestant work ethic kind of left over, this idea that everyone needs to be working and if you're not working, you're not justifying your existence and and you need to be working hard. I think that is part of it, that it's part of it that there's kind of this contradiction in capitalism between let's be efficient and hard work is good. And, you know, at one point that wasn't a contradiction because in order to maintain a decent living standard, you did need to have a lot of people working a lot of the time. Now, with more technological advance, that's becoming a co- an ideological contradiction in capitalism. You know, capitalism has a, a real structure in the real world with real finances, and it also has the ideology. I think David is, is focusing on the ideological uh, part of the equation, which is a good part to focus on, but the thing that I want to introduce to the discussion is thinking about this as um, highlighting some of the contradictions in the material reality of cap- of capitalism. So, if we go through some of the the um, categories and ask, maybe you know, and ask maybe it's not an ideological reason why they're there. Maybe there's a material reason why they're there. Because if you look at it from the individual firm point of view, if I am the CEO of a company, it's not necessarily the society's commitment to valuing work that drives me to create the BS jobs in my company. You know, arguably, if you could buck that trend and and ignore that, you could be more efficient and therefore gain a better position in the market. So why is it that individual firms choose to make these pointless jobs? And I think if you look at the flunkies was the first category, it's because the flunkies are there to make someone look important. That's what David argues. I think he's probably right on that. But it's the people making the decisions that get that. So, to me, it's not... We have to understand that the flunky position isn't something that capitalism doesn't do. It's not an inefficiency of capitalism. Capitalism is designed to meet the needs of the people that make the choices in capitalism, that make the decisions. So when we say... Oh, it's inefficient because all it does is make the wealthy decision makers look important. Of course it does. That's not ineffi that's what capitalism is designed to do, is to meet the needs of the people that make the decisions. And yeah. so to me, that's not a contradiction in the system. It's it's us accidentally taking the stated objectives of capitalism. As if they were the real objectives of capitalism.
3: To apply that to goons, then, you can think of it as competition not always making things as efficient as possible. It doesn't make things more efficient. Competition can say, man, I can I can throw out all these flyers and pamphlets and mail them out, and we'll get a, a few people that, that bite there. You wouldn't necessarily normally do that if you knew – because the first people that did telemarketing – or, or spam mail, it worked because they were the first to do it. But once the the whole industry is saturated with it, the return is so small, but because everyone's doing it, if you didn't,
1: it would hurt you. Yeah, you so, lose market share.
3: Yeah, that competitive edge doesn't make you more efficient. In fact, you have to spend all this extra money and time having people do that because it, it just allows you to stay competitive, but there's a huge inefficiency at work there. And yeah, that's not necessarily a contradiction. That's, I mean, that's, that's showing that that can lead to inefficiencies there.
1: You know, I also want to talk about this in the framework of corporate lawyers, because I think that's a particularly interesting example. If we talk about corporate lawyers, I don't think it's just that you could get rid of everyone's corporate lawyers, like if no one had them, then everything would be fine. That's something that David mentions. I don't know if he's just simplifying, uh, but but I want to complicate that a little bit more, because I think that's not exactly true, to say if you got rid of everyone's corporate lawyers, everything would be fine. Because the corporate lawyers are there to enforce the system of private property. Most notably, one of the reasons you need corporate lawyers is to protect intellectual property, to protect your copyright, to protect your patents, to protect uh, those those kinds of things. And so you need them because people are going to, you know, th- you do need them because other people are going to challenge you on that and you need your army to fight their army. But if those armies weren't there, that would mean that there'd be no way to protect intellectual property. And if there's no way to protect intellectual property, capitalism is is not going to function. Capitalism needs the the owners of capital to be able to exclude others from owning that capital. Mm. And the way that you do that when capital is becoming more and more intellectualized is non-material capital. It's ideas, it's software, it's books and recordings and whatever. It's things that are knowledge commodities. You need to have people enforcing the commodity form on that piece of reality that does not want to take the commodity form. So to me, that's not an ideological commitment to work. It's not because, oh, we just got to have everyone working, so we're going to invent this thing called a corporate lawyer. It's something that's needed to, to allow capitalism to survive. And in fact, many of these things are there to support how capitalism works as a structure, like the idea of the personal assistant not being needed. That supports the idea that that, that decision-maker is an important person. You know, in, in many ways, if we compare this, you know, if you looked at feudal Europe and said, "Oh, we can find contradictions in here. Feudalism officially says that it believes this, but in reality it's not living up to that or it's not or it's doing the opposite. Yeah, you'd find that. But if you said, "How does this support the feudal system? How does this enforce and secure its spot in society? then you'd all of a sudden start making sense of things you know like, the, uh, like you, uh, the, the like we like to point out when you look at the writings of Jesus there there are some really strong indicators that being wealthy was not supposed to be a good thing that you know the whole uh, needle in the eye of a camel and i said it wrong but you <laughs> you know what i'm talking about like it, you know in a feudal society you could say you could say, well, how is the king chosen by God if that if our God has said this? And the king is so wealthy and blah, blah, blah. You could right. say that's a major contradiction. But if you understood feudalism as a class society that is structured to enforce itself as a societal structure – then all of a sudden, it makes sense. It's, oh, that, that story is just there to placate you who doesn't have anything and to make you feel good and, you know, where blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. It would make sense. I think the more I think about these pointless jobs, to me, what a lot of them do is support the capitalist system as a system. Mm-hmm. They fail to produce more output. They fail to grow the pie, as we said in the previous episode. But they are there to enforce the rules of capitalist society.
3: Yeah. With the automation and the efficiency of jobs, that's a that's a big thing there that I was thinking about. You could implode the whole system if you start talking about people not having to work and then giving people money to survive because they're humans. Um, because there just aren't jobs out there. If there's no jobs to do, well, maybe you can just make jobs. Maybe you can just have people do bullshit stuff they don't need to be doing that doesn't actually provide much, but it keeps the house intact. You can keep capitalism going. These aren't good-paying jobs in a lot of cases, and some of them they are, but in a lot of cases they, they keep those people fed and, and alive, and then the, the capitalists continue to make a lot of money, and it keeps it keeps the house from burning down. So, yeah, I totally see that.
2: Yeah, because, I mean, like, look at Rome. You had... A population that mostly didn't need to do much and so they had to placate them with games and feed them during these and stuff like that where i mean like if you got rid of all these jobs you're gonna have a lot of people who are unemployed and unless you're willing to come up with a guaranteed basic income or something like that you're gonna have a lot of people who are really really angry who don't have anything and are really desperate and that is a not good for a firm societal structure
3: But what helps is convincing your populace that – I don't know the people without those jobs that are angry are the problem. I don't, like, right. it, can, it can only work for so long, I'd say, before people get wind of it. But I think that's what they, you often try to do. You have that ideological sort of uh, m- like mind control. Like get, get, get them believing in the thing that is, is not working in their best interest at all.
2: Well, look yeah. at the way media talks about millennials. I mean, yeah. millennials are facing oh, God. Yeah, the, that's great the worst economic uh, situation since the Great Depression. In some ways, even worse because it's kind of being ignored and what is you look at any business news millennials are lazy they just live with their parents they can't buy houses because they like Avocado on their toast. No,
3: you know. not just they can't buy houses. They're ruining the housing market, right? Like, right. like stuff <clears throat> like that.
2: Like oh. in a way that the financial crash and subprime mortgage crisis didn't. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. it's a
3: really good. And, and their low salaries have nothing to do
2: with right. the yeah. fact that low they're not salaries, huge debt, need a job because you got to pay that debt. Yeah. You know, a huge health care bills. Uh. But,
1: but I think the the important thing is to look at it and say, well. If we looked at feudalism, we wouldn't say, oh, the priest was non productive or the courtiers, you know, the people entertaining the king and the lord and lady. We're not, you know, the point isn't that everyone is involved in the production of all of the commodities needed for society. The point is they're there to reinforce that society. The priest is there to help placate the peasant and the courtiers are there to prove that the king and the lords and ladies are important people. Like they're there to support that system. So even, even though we'd have a problem if all of a sudden all of these pointless jobs went away because we'd have to deal with the fact that capitalism pays people based on the work that they do. And that, was, that would create a major contradiction in society. My argument is, I don't think the jobs are going away because they're going to be maintained by the, basically, they're there not to produce anything, not to create more wealth for society, but simply to keep capitalism up, to shore it up.
2: I agree with that to a certain extent. I think, though, that some of the jobs, I mean, we already see, like, if you look at the real unemployment rate, it's super high. Um, I don't have the exact figure in front of me. But I think, like, if you're a black male under the age of 25, I think the unemployment rate is something like 82%, which is just absolutely ridiculous. And how does society react to that? You see increasing coverage of young black males being killed, uh, but you also see, like, huge race system. I mean, we have Nazis marching in the street now. Like, this is, you know, part of a reaction to try and force society back into that hole. And I think... I think we're going to see contradictions like that getting worse because I don't think capitalism can keep a lid as well in technology. I think especially automation um, is the one that, like, keeps eking up.
1: You know what? You make a good point, and that is if the same goal, shoring up capitalism, can be achieved through an automated means, then those jobs may go away. Uh, I guess my point is those jobs aren't going to go away because they're pointless. Because our definition of pointless is is almost the wrong one. They're, when we say they're pointless in this discussion, we're saying they're pointless in the production of better lives for all. But that's not what they're there to do. They're not to, there to make life better for all. They're there to support a system or to allow a, an individual firm to you know, exist within an illogical system. I and, mean... And if if that same thing can be achieved through, without a job, then then that'll happen. But I I think that that'll happen a little bit, but there probably will also be additional administrative functions that get added on to capitalism as it kind of tries to keep a grip on things and and becomes more complex and more kind of... Uh, necrotic. I don't know. So it's, it's in some ways, it's falling apart and kind of grasping its draws and and gerrymandering together, uh, jerry rigging together, uh, a, a way to justify itself.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think the danger with this, I think, and this might be hyperbolic, but I think we are at sort of a socialism or barbarism crossroads. I mean, uh, don't uh, we've said it before i think donald trump is a fascist uh we said that in the primary well we discussed this when it was still the primaries and i every day does not make me think that less Uh, just, just more i mean i think that this we're starting to hit the contradiction point within capitalism where i mean something just fundamentally has to change hopefully for the better, and there's a lot of people on the left working towards that, but also people who sort of control the levers of power, are hemming and hawing over how much they dislike fascism or how much they're okay with it.
1: You know what's interesting is when we had that discussion of of whether Trump was a fascist so long ago, I think we landed on Trump is as much of a fascist as you could possibly be in the American political system. I think we understated it. Yeah. That I think he actually is more of a fascist than you can be in the American political system. When, he, when a, a literal uh, Nazi or white supremacist killed a woman by driving his car into her and Trump's comment on it was, well, the other side had some bad guys and the Nazis did have a permit, well – if you would have asked me, I would have said that was outside of the realm of except of of how fascist you could be as a politician in America. That the and actually, you know according to I'm not the only one that that thinks that that he was um
2: Yeah, even the Republicans yeah. have backed away from it. And I mean, like today we record these on a Sunday, and I don't know how much you've been following his latest statements where he uh called football players who take a knee after Colin Kaepernick's uh, example sons of bitches who should be fired to which i believe i've seen actually and i haven't checked it uh since early this morning at least two owners of nfl teams have gone against them. people who actually donated to donald trump as well as i you know Dozens and dozens and dozens of players coming out and taking a knee. Even I saw uh, a, a baseball player, apparently, went and took a knee during the national anthem. I mean, we're sort of also segueing now into a different topic, but um, just to say, like, there's... We're at a really weird, and interesting, and dangerous time when it comes to that. And I mean, I, we've sort of leaped uh, you know, to the politics of fascism. Um, from this topic but I mean you know, sometimes Marxists are chided because and we talk about how the economy is central which is often misinterpreted as only thing it's not the only thing obviously but it plays a huge role and just the natural segue of this conversation just sort of shows how we're just talking about like pointless jobs how we are on the topic of fascism in America like it's you know, these things that seem not necessarily that important are sort of you know, just kind of yeah, topics like there are important ramifications that things like that have in the economic world. I mean, again, the you know, pointless jobs that people have and don't like. What do they do if they're unemployed? They blame if you're a, a Trump supporter, you blame immigrants. You blame the jobs going to foreign countries like these. These things are tied together like. The good old days when you could work a factory job and, you know, be middle class, you know, versus now where you can barely make ends meet and you're probably a deindustrialized area where the biggest industry is manufacturing math.
1: Yep. Let's leave it there for this <laughs> conversation. If you have thoughts on uh, pointless jobs or the uh, potential problems that capitalism will have to deal with when... Uh, more and more jobs become automated and uh, society changes, uh, please reach out to us. You can find us on the subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash marxism today. And that's it for today. Marxism Today is created by Red Wagner and Tony Schmidt, and is a project of the Democratic Socialists of America, Madison, Wisconsin chapter. We are not official spokespeople of the DSA, and the views expressed in this podcast are our own. You can find us on Twitter at RedWagner2, that's the number two, and SchmidtAJ, that's S-C-H-M-I-T-T-A-J. Our episodes are all available for download on our blog, marxismtodaypodcast.wordpress.com. You can share your thoughts about this episode and others on our subreddit, reddit.com r marxismtoday. Also, you can find information about the Democratic Socialists of America Madison chapter on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash dsamadison.